This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to both the Millennial Politics Podcast and the Brand New Podcast, a podcast brought to you by the folks at Brand New Congress. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie, my pronouns are she, her, hers, and you are listening to our joint series on Venezuela. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Timothy M. Gale, Assistant Professor of Sociology at UNC Wilmington and author of The State and Civil Society in Socialist Venezuela, The Case of U.S. Democracy Assistance, Venezuelan National Sovereignty and International Cooperation Law. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much, Jordan. Happy to be here. Of course. So we are clearly witnessing a profound crisis in Venezuela right now. And many are faulting this economic crisis with socialism. They're saying that this is just the inevitable result of socialism. Is that true? I don't think that's true. You know, um, I don't, you know, certainly many that are once again, as I, as I just mentioned before about some individuals that kind of want to dismiss claims that there's a manufacturer, that there is a crisis in Venezuela, seemingly to bolster their own political positions. Um, I think the same goes um, for individuals that want to claim that socialism doesn't work. They want to lay uh, the blame at the foot of just socialism writ large. I mean, what was socialist about, um, you know, Chavez's governance? Was corruption what was socialism? No. I, what was socialist uh, was the redistribution of some oil revenue uh, to fund projects like uh, the elimination of illiteracy, um, health clinics, um, subsidized uh, housing, subsidized food. So, I mean, if you, you know, if you eliminate the, the phrasing socialism and you put in what was socialist about uh, Chavez's governance, uh, it's hard to square that with the, um, with the economic calamity that we see today. It wasn't that um, Chavez funding health clinics and illiteracy campaigns and education is what brought about this uh, economic uh, calamitous situation. It's, it's a reliance on oil. It's a petrostate. Venezuela is since the discovery of oil has had issues um, uh, with the fact that its its entire economy is tethered to the state of oil, like other countries that rely on you know one or two exports, their economic situation has been tethered to um, particular exports, be it coffee or otherwise. Um, there has been some economic mismanagement. The fact that Chavez and Maduro uh, did put some loyalists, uh, some individuals from the military, in charge of oil. Um, oil production, which has, you know, in part um, probably contributed to um, declining production, just not having the know-how therein. Um, the corruption, of course, that exists, the skimming of the money from the state. So there's less money to go around. There's less money to go into the social programs. And of course, the plummeting oil prices. Once again, the economy and is tied to the price of oil. And since Venezuela hasn't done a very good job of diversifying away from oil, they are, in fact, uh, once again, tethered to this, uh, to the price 
um, of the oil. So it's not, uh, you know, it's not the fact of socialism. You know, there have been economic problems, maybe not this severe, uh, this severe uh, in Venezuela, but um, in the 80s, um, you saw riots and you saw structural adjustment policies that which were designed to rectify existing uh, economic problems. Um, so this is long. These are long-standing issues in Venezuela that are in no way, um, from my perspective, a result of, of socialism. In fact, you know, under Chavez, um, there were a lot of advances, particularly for the poor and working classes, access to health care, um, access to housing, access to uh, more protein, more food. So for a long time under Chavez, you know, this worked. That's why people supported him. There was there's no doubt that uh, citizens uh, supported Chavez. You know, elections under Chavez, for the most part, were uh, monitored. Um, by, you know, at particular points in time by, for example, the Carter Center, uh, and others. Um, so, you know, his policies worked, um, as the price of oil was high and he, re uh, redirected these, uh, profits into programs that people benefited from. Um, so no, it's certainly not the case that it's, uh, socialism, uh, that's the blame for the situation. And you talked about how Venezuela needs to diversify its economy. How would Venezuela go about doing so? How difficult of a process is that given its relationship with the rest of the world right now? Yeah, yeah. And this is a difficult problem. This has perpetually been a problem for um, petro states, um, the, what is called the Dutch disease. Um, Venezuela does have a number, number of other industries. Uh, I mean, you know, they certainly pale in comparison with uh, oil, things like gold. Um, they could rely, you know, historically, they haven't relied too much on tourism, for instance. You know, you look at um, Venezuela in comparison with uh, its neighbor, Colombia, or you look at Nicaragua. I mean, tourism is also something that isn't all that sustainable either. Um, you know, in Nicaragua, for instance, amid the uh, political economic chaos that's going right on right now, um, has lost a lot of uh, money from tourism. So, you know, many things aren't sustainable, but Venezuela could, I think, benefit from uh, perhaps more tourism. They have uh, uh, Angel Falls, the biggest waterfall in the world. Um, historically, they had a lot of visitors to Margarita Island. Um, so they could cultivate uh, touristic endeavors. Again, that's not a solution, but they have gold. Um, they actually, uh, have a, uh, some, uh, highly sought after chocolate in the country. Um, so it's very difficult, you know, I'm not gonna, uh, pretend like I know the solution to, uh, the crisis. I think a lot of it also has to do with, uh, the management of the economy. So they have to diversify, you know, there has to be, um, some other, uh, sorts of, um, industry within the country. You know, they could do a much better, uh, they, they could do much better in the way of managing, um, the oil wealth, uh, that they can create. Um, some countries like, uh, Norway have created sovereign wealth funds. Um, they've put some money aside, you know, sort of for a rainy day, um, that when these crises ensue, um, that they still have some foreign exchange that they can utilize to import products. Um, and so forth. I mean, you know, you think about uh, other countries that are also reliant on oil, places like Russia, um, many countries in the Middle East, uh, so on and so forth. You know, you don't see as dire an economic situation um, therein. And that's because, you know, many of these countries have uh, had policies, whether it be so uh, sovereign wealth funds or other ways of setting aside um, uh, funding, uh, foreign exchange, um, uh, that when these crises come up, uh, they aren't hit as hard. But for what we see in Venezuela is that they didn't exactly prepare accordingly 
Um, and uh, as a result, you know, this crisis has hit Venezuela um, worse than other countries. That's not to say that uh, other countries haven't had uh, faced some economic problems, some depreciation. Russia has had problems with its currency and all the rest of it, but um, no countries have really faced uh, the sort of crisis that Venezuela um, is currently facing. And what exactly is Chavismo? What was the Bolivarian Revolution? You know, it changed over time. You know, when Chavez initially took power, um, he's elected in 1998 and he runs on a more specific platform that actually, that, and that's why he got into power. Um, he talked about combating inequality. He talked about combating neoliberalism. Um, he talked about this idea of uh, participatory democracy, of creating a constitution um, that would include racial and ethnic minorities and the indigenous and all the rest of it and getting citizens really involved in that they weren't going to have this two-party system because that's what they had, uh, much similar to the U.S., um, that they were going to have this, um, you know, much more citizen involvement and decision-making and, and all the rest of it. So Chavismo from the beginning was sort of this populist um, this populist project, this nationalist-oriented project um, that was going to put Venezuelans in charge, um, that was critical, once again, of neoliberalism and wanted to enfranchise citizens. So it had this sort of populist appeal that there were, once again, these sorts of elites out there um, that were making a great deal of money, whereas, whereas average Venezuelans weren't. And he wanted to help uh, uh, average Venezuelans have sort of a dignified, healthy existence. But again, there were some sort of ambiguities, you know, what, you know, how would this take shape? Chavez in his early years, you know, actually traveled uh, to, um, you know, the early years of his presidency, actually travels to the U.S., um, he, uh, he visits the New York Stock Exchange, believe it or not, rings the bell there. Um, he meets with investors J from uh, J.P. Morgan. Um, he even throws a pitch out at the uh, New York Mets game. You know, it, it's hard to imagine that by the end of his uh, tenure in office. And so it's not altogether clear. He, he actually meets with Bill Clinton, although Bill Clinton sort of um, greets him in a very informal way because they know Chavez has affinities uh, for example, with Fidel Castro. So they're not entirely sure what's gonna, what to make of Chavez himself. Um, over time, though, it does become clear. By 2001, for instance, there's a law that's passed, the hydrocarbons law, that allows the state greater uh, control over the oil industry. And eventually, this allows Chavez you know, to utilize um, oil profits in a much more uh, intensive way to fund uh, social programs. So social programs, once again, uh, combating illiteracy, uh, for housing, uh, for education, um, for identity cards. You know, there are all sorts of uh, these social missions that uh, Chavez created and that he funded with oil revenue. So that's a lot of it, you know, this sort of funding of these programs with oil revenue. By 2005, though, he, that is when he begins to talk more about this project of 21st century socialism. Um, and thereafter, you see more nationalization, you see more expropriation of industries. Um, you see more sort of antagonism between private business owners um, and the government and uh, much more, you know, this sort of uh, atmosphere. So socialism actually doesn't come, you know, it doesn't come until, um, you know, uh, close to 10 years, you know, seven, eight years into uh, Chavez's, um, into his presidency. So it's quite, uh, uh, it's, it's interesting. But at root, Chavismo is, is that's how I would sort of... Uh, uh, typify it. It's had it's had uh, different stages, if you will. I think you might see that from um, what I just mentioned. You know, uh, particularly with regards to the rhetoric that was uh, deployed at first, it was just a the Bolivarian Revolution, 
And then it becomes the sort of socialist revolution um, and takes on a much more, I should say, anti-American, um, anti-US tone, um, which was really culminated in the present. If you think about it, you know, uh, at, there were ambassadors between the two countries. There were some limited sorts of relations. Um, then you see the ambassador, you know, there's no ambassadors. This is around 2009, 2010. Um, so you see this increasingly um, tenuous relationship, this increasingly antagonistic relationship into the present now where we have Trump, you know, cutting off uh, oil and threatening uh, military, you know, suggesting that uh, military invasion is, is on the table. And I think you're hopping right into this. What is the United States? Why is the United States so invested in regime change here? And why were they so quick to embrace Juan Guaido? Yeah, I mean, I think this is an interesting question. You know, I mean, for observers, uh, Trump, you know, that have tried to really capture Trump's foreign policy disposition, it's 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 quite difficult to do so, and that just might be the case. You know, that it's very hard to pin down exactly what sort of uh, foreign policy writ large um, Trump is trying is after. Um, but I think that overall, Trump wants a foreign policy that makes him look good, um, bolsters his own chances uh, at re-election come 2020. And, um, you know, I think that he sees Venezuela as sort of an easy victory. Um, you know, he was, he, during his campaign, he was very critical of U.S. involvement in the Middle East. I think he sees the Middle East as sort of this quagmire um, that Syria, Afghanistan, everything involving ISIS and all the rest of it is sort of unwinnable at this point and that people, that the populace is, is just, uh, you know, fatigued by all this U.S. involvement, you know, for some folks over the entire court, you know, for young folks, the entire course of their uh, life, right? I mean, it's the past 18, you know, going on what, something like 18 years, um, very heavy, you know, the, the war on terror. So I think Trump, you know, he wants to look good. Uh, we know that he's, he's quite, I don't think it's controversial to say he's, you know, quite egomaniacal, bragging, all the rest of it. Um, and I think he sees, once again, Venezuela as this, as this easy victory. Um, and it benefits him in a few ways. But he sees, you know, the economic situation is going on. You know, he, I think that he's planning to run against Bernie Sanders. A lot of, there's a lot, I think there's a lot of evidence just based on his own behavior that perhaps he's planning uh, to have to run against Bernie Sanders, the way he's critiqued uh, socialism. It almost sounds like he's uh, ready to uh, develop a whole new Red Scare era. Um, you know, it's, it, it's a very, very interesting situation. I'm not sure if that's going to work, um, as many young people don't really have the, you know, the experience so much of the Soviet Union. Um, but that seems to be what he is planning to run against, this idea of socialism and you know, if he can go into Venezuela and he can defeat uh, Maduro and he can sort of uh, claim a victory there, then he can come back and he can say during the campaign, um, you know, Bernie Sanders, he embodies this sort of system. You know, I went to Venezuela. I solved their problems. You know, are you going to let Bernie come in and bring all these problems back to the U.S. that we just solved? In Venezuela, dictatorship, economic calamity, all the rest of it. So I see him, you know, it, it, it's to benefit uh, his own, you know, it's to benefit him. Um, he's also put Marco Rubio in charge, but I think this is all tied up together. You know, he knows that uh, Marco Rubio has been a longtime critic 
of uh, Venezuela. And um, yeah, I think he thinks this is going to be an easy victory. I don't think that, you know, if they don't have to invade, I don't think this is something that people necessarily, that individuals within um, the U.S. state necessarily want to do. I think that they believe they might be able to scare um, the military uh, away from uh, away from Maduro. I don't think it's any coincidence that John Bolton, for instance, had that notebook with 5,000 troops to Colombia, right? Um, that uh, I, I can't imagine that Bolton would have made a fumble like that. I think that was probably designed to scare Maduro. I think that Rubio over the weekend, um, tweeting out these pictures of a bloodied Gaddafi in the streets of Libya, um, is trying to send a message to Maduro and trying to send a message to um, people around Maduro. I think, you know, the, uh, putting Elliot Abrams, at, in, you know, as the special envoy, um, in charge of these, uh, in charge of this situation is also trying to send a message. You know, here's this guy who supported these dictatorial, um, regimes, uh, who supported the Contras in Nicaragua all throughout the 1980s. He's a, a criminal, um, all the rest of it. You know, I think all of this, you know, if they don't have to, uh, militarily invade or expend all that much energy. I think that this is, you know, they would like an easy victory and something that Trump can claim and put his name on, right? Um, so that's what I think is going on. Why they were so quick to recognize Guaido? I mean, once again, I think that they, um, many in the U.S. state, individuals that surround Trump, and this is largely bipartisan, I would I think um, would love to get rid of the socialists in Venezuela. Hugo Chavez, for a long time, um, was an irritant to the U.S. and sort of an annoyance to them. He was critical of the war on terror. He was critical of U.S. economic policies. He was critical of Bush, of Obama. Um, he tried to create, you know, he did create regional organizations uh, that the U.S. wasn't part of, like the ALBA. He aligned with enemies of the U.S., uh, countries like China and Russia. Um, you know, was at the forefront of allowing, you know, China to make these inroads, um, into Latin America, um, engaged in military exercises with Russia. So altogether, you know, Venezuela has provided a challenge to U.S. global power. You know, you'll find some people that'll say, oh, it's the oil, it's the oil. Well, I mean, Chavez sat on the oil, you know, they've been, they've had the oil for 20 years. So that doesn't really explain this type of, uh, aggressive policy, um, you know, um, I think that more so it's this issue of uh, the challenge to U.S. global power. Um, Venezuela has had nationalized oil since 1976. Other countries also have uh, some modicum of nationalized oil. And you don't find the U.S. just simply invading, you know, so that Chevron or whomever else can uh, make some money. Um, I think the deeper issue is this challenge. And that's why, you know, it was a a sort of fortuitous circumstances, the fact that you do have these center-right governments as well around Latin America, Jair Bolsonaro, um, you had this change of government in Ecuador, you know, Correa is gone, Lenin Moreno's there. Um, so, you know, the stars have sort of aligned for this type of situation. If Guaido in earlier years, you know, somebody like Guaido came on the scene and said, you know, I am the president. It's possible the U.S. might have recognized them, but, you know, I think that the situation would have been that you, that no one would, would have really caught on. And because the economic situation was much better, that it just wouldn't really, you know, you, Maduro, the Venezuelan government, wouldn't be as weak as they are today.
Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. And you wrote a piece in the Washington Post titled, The U.S. Has Quietly Supported the Venezuelan Opposition for Years. So is the Trump administration's policy on Venezuela all that different from previous U.S. administrations? And what is the history of the U.S. supporting the opposition? Yeah, so I wrote this piece, you know, which details indeed, uh, as you said, um, that the U.S. has uh, supported um, the opposition, you know, for nearly as long as Chavez had been in office until the present. Um, USAID, the U.S. Agency for International Development, worked within civil society trying to turn citizens against Chavez um, and try to direct them towards the opposition. Uh, They worked with student groups who were out in the streets protesting, you know, providing them with training, providing them um, with some materials, all the rest of it. The National Endowment for Democracy, which receives nearly all its funding from U.S. Congress, has worked with opposition political parties, uh, particularly the International Republican Institute, which is a um, sub-agency of the National Endowment for Democracy, has worked directly with some of these parties uh, that I've mentioned, you know, Premier Justicia, helping them build uh, websites, uh, you know, all these, uh, what they, they call them, something like uh, political party strengthening, you know, where they, they lead these seminars, how to reach out to youth voters, how to speak with journalists, how to develop materials. Um, all these sorts of things. So, you know, since Chavez came to power, uh, this has been ongoing and, and certainly continues um, into the present. Um, now, where Trump is different is that he's went nuclear on the sanctions. You know, for a long time, there was always these discussions about uh, Chavez would say, you know, I, d- I don't need the U.S. and I'm going to cut off uh, oil supplies. You know, the reality is, is that Venezuela does need the U.S., um, does need uh, um uh, the U.S. market, much more so than the U.S. needs Venezuelan oil. Um, but this never happened. You know, there was always sort of, you know, uh, concern or wonder about whether somebody like Bush and then Obama might also um, cut off, uh, you know, um, prohibit oil revenue from going back to uh, Venezuela, you know, going back from Sitco. Sitco, you know, is, is, is Venezuelan oil. And Trump has went, uh, has really exercised the nuclear option where he has uh, said, you know, uh, where they've sanctioned um, PDVSA, the state oil company in Venezuela, and uh, that uh, these oil earnings can't go back um, to Venezuela. So there's now there's, you know, there's no incentive for Venezuela to send its oil 
to Citgo. So now they're trying to redirect sales to particularly to India and to uh, China and to Russia. So that is very different. And then, of course, this open um, discussion about a military uh, invasion is also very different. Um, you know, and seemingly more serious. It, you never really got the impression from Obama. I mean, there was always discussions about whether the Bush administration was involved in the 2002 coup. I think it is clear that, you know, they were supportive of the transitional government, like Trump is supportive of Guaido right now. But um, there was never, I, you know, there was never any real indication that there was, you know, this military option on the table that the U.S. was going to send the Marines over or something like this. Now this seems like a very real possibility. Um, you know, I mean, this, I, 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 there are certainly are some differences. There's obvious continuity in the fact that uh, the socialists are being opposed and um, there's clearly a desire to get them out of office. Um, but uh, Trump is cer certainly much more aggressive in terms of these oil sanctions and in terms of just openly talking about, um, talking about and seemingly uh, uh, gleeful about a uh, military invasion of the country. And the Red Cross and UN are currently criticizing the U.S. for politicizing and, as we discovered, militarizing so-called humanitarian aid. Previous guests on this podcast have called this a hypocritical move on the U.S. given the sanctions you talked about. What's the truth about humanitarian aid and how sanctions affect the Venezuelan economy? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, this is, uh, this is a, what you mentioned is precisely why the Red Cross and the UN were opposed to this sort of media spectacle, this media stunt that the U.S. was engaged in over the weekend with uh, USAID supplies on the border of uh, Colombia. You know, many have pointed out that if the U.S. was truly serious about assisting uh, Venezuelan citizens, then they'd try to work multilaterally. They tried to work through the United Nations and some of its agencies therein. Uh, try to work with other multilateral groups, um, or I mean, uh, with uh, international groups like the Red Cross. Um, if they were, you know, if if their primary concern was getting food and you know municipal uh, supplies to Venezuelan citizens, um, you know, what happened on the border obviously seemed like this uh, stunt designed for optics. You know, either the either the U.S. and the opposition could get this small amount, you know. A, ultimately the small amounts of supplies into the opposition. Then if the opposition, Guaido, distributes them, then this provides uh, Guaido with some legitimacy. But what I'm sure they knew was going to happen, what seemingly everyone knew was going to happen, is what the government said, that they were going to block the aid. And then, you know, the optics suggest that uh, Maduro is this cruel dictator who's starving the population and wants them to be sick and hungry. And that's that's seemingly exactly what it was designed for. And I think the UN and the Red Cross saw that, that it was a, a politicization um, of this aid. And so, you know, Maduro, for several reasons, wasn't going to let this aid in. You know, one, uh, wanted to deny the US the optics of looking like this beneficent actor, right? Um, you know, as you mentioned, the sanctions, which are going to do far more damage than any sort of uh, few convoys could make up for. So from Maduro's perspective, you know, here's the U.S. leveling these sanctions against the country, which are going to hammer poor populations, going to eventually lead to more shortages in the country. And now the U.S. is turning around and saying, like, look at us, you know, we're these heroes and we're going to bring um, these supplies 
uh, into the country. So you wanted to deny them those optics. And then, of course, USAID, you know, as I just mentioned before, they've had political, uh, political uh, programs in the country designed to assist the opposition uh, to uh, effectively get um, the socialists out of office. So, you know, why would Maduro let uh, USAID convoys into the country? Um, why would he work with USAID, an organization that is explicitly sought um, to displace uh, both him and Hugo Chavez? So, um, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today and telling us about the truth of what's happening in Venezuela. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate the invitation. Of course. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to keep up to date with the Millennial Politics podcast and the brand new podcast joint series on Venezuela. Make sure to subscribe to both of the podcasts on iTunes. Check out our websites, brandnewcongress.org and millennialpolitics.co and follow us on social media. Thanks for listening.